Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Christ the teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice calling us to cast out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the beauty, truth, and goodness only you can offer, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, welcome to Follow to Lead, a journey twice a month into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to Him. I'm Father Randy Sly, your host, and my co-host, uh, Kyle Petriantonio, is not able to be with us today for this episode. But today... We are going to be talking with Meg Hunter-Kilmer, who describes her apostolate as being a hobo for Christ. And she's an author and a speaker with a bachelor's in theology and a master's in systematic theology, both from Notre Dame. So she's a domer. And uh, after five years as a full-time religion teacher, uh, she quit her job and packed everything into the trunk of her car uh, to drive around the country as well as fly around the world uh, as a hobo missionary. So since 2012 in June, she's traveled the country uh, nationally and also traveled internationally, speaking to anyone who will listen about the goodness of God, Catholic apologetics, Christian morality, and a life of prayer. And she has uh, two books. Her newest book is Pray for Us, 75 Saints Who Sinned, Suffered, and Struggled on Their Way to Holiness, and it's scheduled for release on October 21st, of this year. So Meg, welcome to the program. Father, thank you. I am so glad to be here. Well, I'm glad that you could be with us today. And what we normally do when we begin our podcast is to just have us uh, have you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your upbringing. Yeah, so I was raised Catholic. Um, you know, we went to church on Sundays, I went to my first confession, I lied in my first confession, and then I never went back to confession. So... <laughs> I was a practicing Catholic in as much as I was showing up at church, um, but I really, by the time I was 11, I was functionally an atheist. Um, I was convinced that there was no God. Anyone who believed in God was sort of an idiot. And then I got dragged on a confirmation retreat uh, just a few years later when I was 13 and went to confession out of imaginary peer pressure. I thought that if I didn't go to confession, no one would be my friend. And at 13, the only thing that mattered to me was people liking me. And I went to confession and it just changed everything. I encountered the Lord in a really profound way. Um, and I kind of walked out of that confessional and was like, okay, well, if this is real, then it's worth everything. And um, I ended up studying theology and teaching religion for five years. Um, I've been living out of my car for nine years now, 50 states, 25 countries, just telling people about the incredible and unceasing love of God. Oh, that sounds great. And all of this happened in what area of the country? Where were you uh, raised? So I grew up outside D.C. on the Virginia side. On the Virginia side. Okay, very good. And for those of us like myself who used to live there, Vienna, Virginia, which was Vienna, Virginia. the end of the metro line back in the days when I was living there. So great to have you with us. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, later in the program, I want to talk a little bit about your experience in Catholic education. But I've got to tell you, I'm really curious because whenever I think of a hobo, I think of a guy who's jumping on the back of a freight train with a satchel and uh, he's got no plans. You know, it's kind of like the Roger Miller song, you know, uh, and uh, anyway, you in your current apostolate, you describe yourself as being a hobo for Christ. How did that thinking come across and, and um, what made you choose that motif to kind of explain what you're doing? Yeah, you know, it's funny because. Where, where I'm from, that's what a hobo means, right? It's something that doesn't exist anymore. It's a guy during the depression. It's like, 
sort of something that people own that they celebrate. Um, and I run into some issues because for some people, hobo is a slur speaking about a person who is experiencing homelessness. And I'm like, well, I'm, but that's not like, that's not what that means where I'm from. And then in England, they're like, what even is a hobo? And I've been told you should call yourself a tramp for Jesus. And I'm like, oh, there you go. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Tramp in an American accent means something different, you know, and yes. we, we have some saints who have really owned that experience and repented of that, but I, that's not my story. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the Lord really, I hope called me um, to, to have this itinerant ministry and it wasn't something that I was looking for at all. And it wasn't something that even when I started, I realized was going to last for a very long time. And I think somewhere along the line, when I've been doing it eight or 10 months, somebody was like, Oh, well, you're just a hobo. Like you just go from one place to another traveling to wherever there's work. And I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. And, and I think that the traveling, that the, the connotation of traveling and the connotation of sort of, um, I don't want to say helplessness exactly, but not having a plan and not exactly having control and just kind of having to go where you're led without really having the ability to choose fully, um, really sort of encapsulates the experience that I have because it's not, it's not something where I'm like, well, I, I want to go this place and I want to go this place. And so we're just going to like couch surf and it's going to be fun. It's like, well, I don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow night, but I know it needs to be somewhere between these two cities, you know? So definitely mm-hmm. more of an experience of letting the Lord be the one who's in charge and then being able then to receive what, what he gives me and what he does through me as gift as, instead of, you know, this, I'm very type A and I, I feel very pleased with myself when I manage to accomplish things. And it's harder to feel pleased with myself when it is just this purely providential experience. And to me, it sounds an awful lot like um, the uh, mission of the 12 when Jesus sent them out from town to town and he gave them explicit instructions that involved not uh, being able to provide for themselves, but rather to count on the people around. Is that kind of in the back of your mind as, as something that uh, is for your type of ministry? You know, I don't, I try not to, to identify too much with that passage um, because it was such a different experience for them going out two by two, going to places where people had never heard the gospel before the risks right. they were taking. And I, I feel like it's a little bit much for me to be like, oh, I'm like that. It's a, you know, there are some saints that I've encountered who have a more similar experience. Uh, Mama Antula, who's, her name is Blessed Maria Antonia de Pazzi Figueroa. She was a little bit of a more similar thing. She was living in Argentina in um, the 18th century when the Jesuits had been mm-hmm. suppressed. And so she was going around leading retreats and right. going barefoot through the mountains of Argentina. So again, a little bit more hardcore. Um, but yeah, there's definitely, there's space in the tradition. Um, with people that I identify with, but the early apostles, I'm like, that was a little bit more. <laughs> that's that a, that's a higher pay grade, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. So anyway, so back in, in 2012, you packed up your car and you knew this is what you wanted to do. How did you begin it? I mean, did you just go someplace or, or what's, what was yeah. your start? So I should clarify that it is not what I wanted to do. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to be faithful and it seemed to me that this is what God was asking me to do. This is not a life that I would choose. And it's not a life that I necessarily recommend, but it, the Lord had just really made it clear. Like it, it just seems like a good idea and it's objectively not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not the kind of person who normally is like, oh yeah, I should just be homeless and unemployed indefinitely. And so that, that was really what gave me the instinct that this was something that I had to follow because it was so contrary to my natural inclinations. And so at first I thought it was just going to be for two months, father. Like I had no idea that this was going to be a decade of my life or, you know, maybe more. And so at first I was like, well, I'll just, you know, I'll go and stay with some friends and I'll put out some feelers and I'll make some videos and I'll do some writing and I'll just see if people invite me to come speak at things. And I started to get the invitations, um, And, you know, early on sort of decided that I wasn't going to charge any money, um, partially because I'm just much more comfortable marketing myself if I don't get anything out of it. Right. You know, like it's a hard thing to sell yourself when it feels like you're trying to gain. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I just I just want to tell people about Jesus. That's all I want. Um, And yeah, I thought that it would be just a pretty brief stint. I figured God was just testing me and he wanted to see if I would trust him. 
And then he was going to give me the perfect job and everything was going to be lovely. Um, and uh, that is not, <laughs> that is not what ended up happening. Uh, but gradually, you know, through my social media presence and blogging and eventually podcasting, I started to get enough of a reputation that I had invitations. You know, at first it was really just a lot of staying with friends and feeling like a mooch and the Lord sort of healing the part in me that felt like I had to earn the right to exist and showing me that it was good that I existed even when I wasn't offering anything and that people mm -hmm. loved me even when I wasn't doing them a favor. Uh, and mm -hmm. just the healing that came in those first six months was really, really beautiful before, before the work really picked up. So when you're on the road, like you said, maybe tomorrow you don't know where you're going to stay, but you've got to be, let's say, uh, in where I'm from, Kansas City, you've got to be in Kansas City in a few days. So you need to find someplace in between. Do people reach out and say, hey, if you need a place to stay, that kind of thing? They do. I have a hard time keeping track of all of that, mostly because Instagram doesn't let you search inside your direct messages, which makes me crazy. So unless I remember your name and where you're from, I'm kind of out of luck on that front. Sometimes I try and keep notes, but it's all, I'm just a little bit mm -hmm. frazzled by all of it. And so usually what I'll do is I'll just go on Instagram and I'll post in my story and say, Hey, I need a place to stay along I 40 somewhere between these two cities. Can anybody help me out? Um, and so far the answer has always been, yes, I've always found a place. Wow. That is so cool. So being on the road a lot, do you have a place that you call home? I don't know. Okay. So Everybody always parents, wants to know my home base and I'm like, yeah. nope. Okay. So you still have parents in Northern Virginia? Uh, my family is a little bit outside, further north, but what we wouldn't call Northern Virginia. Oh, okay. Okay. But so you have a place that you could head someplace if you wanted to be with family and that kind of thing, but no yeah. real personal home for yourself. Right. Exactly. Okay. Well, I can only imagine the kind of stories that you've encountered, the divine moments that you've had with uh, people on the road over these years. Do you have maybe one or two really special memories that, that you could share about this journey that you've been on? I mean, the best headline is definitely when I was homeless in Istanbul and they were under martial law and there was rioting in the streets. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Jesus was like, you think I'm not God in Turkey? Like I'm God right. in Turkey. And it was the feast of Our Lady of the Rosary which commemorates the miraculous victory of Christendom over the Turk, right? It's the only day in the liturgical calendar where we actually liturgically celebrate God's triumph over Turkey. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to assume you're winking at me here and I'm going to go ahead and trust that this is not an accident and that you're taking care of this. And uh -huh. I ended up um, meeting a friend of a friend at the church in Istanbul and he found me some sisters who could stay with me and he like shepherded me past all of the police in their riot gear. And, you know, later that evening I was praying and I was like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, I feel like I really spent a lot of my effort and my life trying to prove that I trust you. Why are you always testing me? And I just really felt the Lord saying, honey, I wasn't testing you. I was saving you. There were riots uh -huh. in the street and you were planning on wandering aimlessly in the direction of this hotel that somebody was supposed to have booked for you. Does that seem like a good idea? No. Uh -huh. So I canceled your hotel room so that you would have to get help from a priest who would walk you directly to the door of the nuns because now is not a good time to wander around in Turkey alone as a young woman. Like what? I was like, oh, okay. Fair point. Yeah. 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 So, and in terms of your, your speaking and your ministry, what are the things that are most, um, I don't know how to use the term, maybe precious to you. What are the times that you find best? What's the sweet spot? for your type of ministry, do you think? You know, it's interesting because I just, I can't know. I can't know what the Holy Spirit is going to do. And I can't know when I'm going to get out of the way. So I speak to mm -hmm. ages one through 98. And I would say that broadly speaking, college and young adults uh, are really, they tend to be really fruitful experiences because they don't yet think they know everything about the faith and their life, but they're also there on purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it's that sort of sweet spot after high school when they're being made to show up, but before they're, they've really figured out life and, you know, they've got their vocation and their career and their kids. And it can be difficult going to someone in their fifties or sixties and saying, you really need to shake up the way that you experience the Lord and the mm -hmm. way that you pursue him. Um, and people 
can find that quite threatening, especially because, you know, I'm almost 40, but I, I appear much younger uh, even than that. And, and so people are like, I'm sorry, who do you think you are telling me how to live my life? And I'm like, I, I'm not telling you how to live your life. I'm just mm-hmm. saying you could be a mystic who levitates every day and God still has more for you. And his right. love is still bigger than you understand it to be. And there is still more joy and more peace that the Lord is offering you in this life. Even if you're already a saint, right? Mm-hmm. God has more for you and he wants more from you. And I think most of us, we just don't know Jesus in that intimate way. Right. And, and I want people to know him. I want, I want them to encounter him in a way that helps them to know that they are deeply and unceasingly loved. And that can be very threatening to people. Yeah. Even if I'm not then saying your life needs to change, mm-hmm. just the, this idea of intimacy with God Mm-hmm. It can be terrifying, I think, especially for Catholics. Yeah. And so I do, I get a lot of resistance um, mm-hmm. when I'm, when I'm just trying to help people know Jesus and that, that can be tough, but you know, if the Holy Spirit's doing his work and I'm, I'm just letting him do it, then I don't, I don't feel too much anxiety about it. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that you've also ministered up to like age 98 mm-hmm. when, when you're with somebody that's elderly, what are the th- things that <clears throat> that they like to talk about with you? You know, I think that um, there is, there's a humility often that comes with great age uh, where you really have come to realize that, that there is so much more in this world that you Mm -hmm. haven't understood. And so it's, it's incredibly humbling to me when I speak with people who have been following Jesus for 80 years Mm-hmm. And, and the Lord says something to their hearts and they begin to cry and they tell me, well, I just, I never knew that before. I never knew mm-hmm. God loved me like this. Um, and I think for a lot of people who grew up Catholic there, there was in the 20th century, there was sort of this idea that having a relationship with Jesus as Protestant and reading scripture as Protestant and yeah. praying from the heart is Protestant. And, and they were really constrained to these very formal approaches to prayer and religion, which can be very life-giving if they mm-hmm. are a part of the experience of being a Christian. Mm-hmm. And, and the church has always made it clear that the rosary is designed to lead you into personal prayer, not to be your only personal prayer. Right, right. Um, and so I think for a lot of people, for a lot of years, any any insinuation that they ought to just sit and read scripture, that they ought to just sit and talk to Jesus, that they ought to bring their suffering to the Lord and be honest with him was something that, that was very off-putting because it felt Protestant. And in a time when Catholics were very much the minority and were experiencing persecution and were trying to figure out how to become American while still being Catholic, it was just really complicated. And it was definitely a shut the doors and keep the Catholics in here. Um, and so there's something really beautiful in speaking with that generation who haven't had that experience of the faith. And obviously many people became involved in the charismatic movement or just like knew Jesus personally through their own experience. Right. But for people who yeah. are very, very faithful Catholics and who have reached a point in their life where they're ready to listen, where they're not intimidated or put off by the idea that they might, that there might be more to their religious experience. It's just so beautiful to Mm -hmm. see these, these elderly men and women weeping over Mm -hmm. the idea that they are seen and known and loved by Jesus. I I mean, such a gift for, to see that humility and that openness and to recognize that it really has nothing to do with me. It is just Mm -hmm. the Holy spirit at work in their hearts. So really at, I mean, almost at any age, the real key is, I need to get to the real person that I'm sharing with because I want that real person to drop whatever barriers they have to remove whatever fences are in the way and just let God be a friend. Exactly. And I think that's one reason that I love the saints so much is that I, I can't necessarily walk up to someone and say, Hey, what's your, what's your deepest shame in your life? You know, and because I'm a missionary and I leave, people do actually share a lot of the darkness of their lives and thinks they never have to talk to me again. But what people generally need in order really to hear the love of God is to have their shame 
and their brokenness named and to be told mm-hmm. God loves you in that. Now, Meg, you had a, a previous career in Catholic education. What is it that you did? So I was a high school religion teacher primarily, although as with most Catholic schools, you do a lot of things, you wear a lot of hats. So my heart was really in teaching high school religion. I taught a little bit of middle school and some like logic and some Greek mythology, which was interesting because I don't know it, Um, but (laughs) you know how it is and campus ministry and some student government stuff and directed a play. all of the different things, but mostly I was a teacher of religion for high schoolers. Now, was that all in one place then? Two different schools. So I was three years in Atlanta and then two years in Kansas. Okay. Where in Atlanta were you? I was at Holy Spirit Prep in Sandy Springs Uh, with Kyle. I think I have to know your boss right back then. Yes, exactly. Kyle Petrantonio was the, the head of school there then. And where were you in Kansas? I was in Atchison at Moore Hill Mount Academy. Oh, were you? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, our uh, religion teacher at St. Michael, Kenny Walker. I don't know if he was there when you were, but uh, we didn't overlap. No, he okay. was right before me. Okay. Or after, he was right after me. Great. And uh, well, so you taught in school and uh, was, was this the direction that you had been thinking about when you were at Notre Dame? Yeah. You know, I found out when I was 14 that religion teacher was a job and I was like, stop. I can get paid to force people to listen to me talk about Jesus. Sign me up. So the whole okay. reason I went to Notre Dame is because I wanted to be a religion teacher. Okay. And, and so those five years, did that, I mean, were you, did you sense that you were actually doing what you thought you would be doing in that world? For four and a half years. For four and a half years. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, I still... I loved teaching, like creepy loved teaching. Like Sunday night, I was so excited because it was almost Monday. That's not normal, right? People don't feel that way about Monday. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was just so clear to me that God's grace was all over it. I naturally have a really hot temper. And in four and a half years in the classroom, I was angry two times. And I just knew that that was miraculous. Right? Uh, okay. You've met teenagers. And then that last semester, that grace was really just withdrawn. And it became very clear that God was saying, it's time for you to move on. And, and so tell me about that. Was there this, was it something that was instantaneous or a gradual unveiling of what you sensed he was going to do next? So the, um, the experience of the grace being withdrawn was yeah, pretty sudden. Um, I'd had a tough first semester that last year, but it was, it was tough because I was doing a million things and I was designing curriculum for all of my classes and they were all classes I hadn't taught before. And it was just a lot. Right. And then that second semester should have been the easiest semester of my career. And I was still sort of filled with anxiety and just felt out of control and was experiencing all of this anger that I really hadn't in years. Um, And I I just had this sense that the Lord was saying, hey, I need you to pay attention. And so I took it to prayer and I prayed about leaving and I felt a lot of peace and I prayed about staying. I felt a lot of anxiety, a lot of unrest. Uh, This is an approach to discernment that really only works if you're in a state of grace, right? Um, Mm -hmm, So you got to be prayed up. And and if like prayer is something that you do because you love the Lord and not just to figure stuff out, right? Like you have to have sort of a baseline of time that you spend with Jesus, not because he's your magic eight ball who tells you what to do, but because he's a person you're in relationship with. Uh, but, you know, so I'm, I'm praying about this and, and I was like, okay, well, it's time to leave. So I pull out my Excel spreadsheet with all the different schools I want to teach at and their average SAT and their curriculum and their dress code. And like how many saints went there because I'm ridiculous. Right. And I was like, I guess I should pray about not teaching. And I prayed about not teaching thinking like, this is all I've ever wanted to do. It's all I've ever trained for. Like, I don't need to worry about this. And I just felt this resounding peace mm. followed by this, this deep and profound confusion. Cause I was like, what am I supposed to do? Right. I have a master's degree in theology that and a winning personality will get you a second interview at McDonald's. This is not like a lucrative <laughs> degree. Right. Right. Um, and a priest friend of mine was like, well, you've been wanting to do more public speaking. You're good at that. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Like you can't just quit life and be a public speaker. And I took it to prayer and I just felt like the Lord was saying, tell me why not. And I couldn't come up with a reason not to be homeless and unemployed. Um, and since I am naturally very type A and very concerned with impressing people, I was like, well, that's got to be from Jesus. And so here we are. 
Well, that must have been an interesting discussion for you to have with uh, uh, the principal at the school where you were teaching. Uh, yeah, I, I'm choosing to move on into a world of doing nothing, you know, of not having right. a job and not right. having a home. I'd rather be unemployed and homeless right. than work yeah, here. Exactly. And, I mean, obviously, he. I was working for a man who really, really loved Jesus. Um, and I think he was a little bit bewildered, but he also just, he knows who God is and he knows that God asks you to do some crazy mm-hmm. things sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. And so everybody was really supportive, which was a great grace. Now, do you see any similarities between the ministry that you have now and your work as a Catholic educator? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I don't know that I could have gone straight into doing this kind of work without right. having been a teacher first. I mean, if nothing else, being a teacher it teaches you how to improvise, right? Like you can be a performer and you can just show up and be like, oh, this is what we're talking about today. Great. You know, as, as a teacher, a kid comes in and it's like, why does the church hate gay people? And you can't be like, that's not the topic we're talking about today. You have to be able to respond to, to that deep hunger of his heart. Right. Um, and so I think as a missionary also just to be able to be present to the needs of the particular community and to be able to respond and sort of to read a room and tell when, when you're saying something that isn't resonating with people so that you can explain more clearly. But I think also, you know, the real longing of my heart in being a teacher was that relational ministry. You know, like I love standing up in front of a crowd and telling them what is true, but really that was in service to the relationships that I was building with the kids. Mm -hmm. And that was a great sorrow to me when I began this hobo missionary work, because I was like, but it's like, I just want to build relationships. And you can't do that if you're only there for three days. And Jesus was just like, honey, when have I ever, ever given you a desire that I have not satisfied? And I began to realize that it was that the work that I do, the speaking that I do is very much in service to the couch ministry, to showing up Mm -hmm. at somebody's house. And being a person that they can dump all of their mess on without any fear of repercussions because they're never going to see me again. And mm-hmm. so I, I do have a lot of those, a lot of those relationships, a lot of opportunity to pray with people and just to love them in their suffering. And that's been, that's been a great blessing and a real um, next step, I think, to mm-hmm. the work that I was doing as a teacher. Now, is there any cyclical ministry in this where you go back to some place that you've been before yes. and kind of catch up with people? Yes. And that's really, I think, one of the greatest graces in all of this. There are a lot of places that I go back fairly regularly, but there's one place in particular where I, I feel that I'm at home and I don't have any like regular place that I stay there. So that sort of complicates it. But when I go to St. John Francis Regis in Hollywood, Maryland, people are thrilled. Interesting. Yeah. And they, I mean, these kids invite me to their weddings and I go visit them at their different colleges and, you know, they like text me when they're in a crisis and it's just really, it's been an incredible gift. And so there's a summer program, a summer camp that works there uh, really for the purpose of converting the instructors and making them saints. And so when I go, I give talks every day, but I also just put together a schedule and I, I sit on a couch for 40 hours. And people just cycle through and they just share their hearts and mm-hmm. I give them saint friends and I give them scriptures and I pray mm-hmm. with them and I you know, direct them to spiritual directors and all of these things. And it's just really, really beautiful to have that little mm-hmm. taste of that consistency of relationship. Well, I'm glad that you didn't pick couch potato ministry as the name of what you do, because I think, <laughs> you know, hobo missionary sounds a little bit kind of cooler than, you know, couch potatoes. So. Um, it's true. It's yeah. True. Now, one of the things when I was, I went over your website and one of the terms that I, I love that you have there is the term radical discipleship. What, what does that term mean to you? You know, it's really, I think it's simpler than people assume they hear radical discipleship and they're like, I need to live in a car too. And I'm like, Oh, please don't. I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe, uh-huh. but really probably not. Yeah. Uh, radical just means from the root. It means yeah. that the way that we follow Jesus is holistic and it's, it's at the heart of who we are. So when we're choosing what school to send our children to, it's, we're choosing as disciples. And when we're picking a major, we're picking a major as disciples. And when we're deciding which streaming service we're going to use, we're deciding that as disciples, right? Which doesn't mean that like you can't ever watch fun, shallow media, right? It means mm-hmm. 
that everything in your life is in the service of the gospel, right? And mm-hmm, so that, right. that might mean that you watch a lot of The Office so that you can relate to your coworkers who only ever talk about The Office so that you can seem like an ordinary real person to them so that you have a leg to stand on when you talk about the mm-hmm. gospel, right? Yeah. Like that. And it, and it can mean that you that you really love playing in your young adult dodgeball league, right? Not mm-hmm. just because you're trying to serve those people, but because that's a way that you find joy and the Lord speaks in joy, right? I was, I've been learning about servant of God, Guido Schaefer, who was a Brazilian Gen X surfer, me, um, medical doctor and seminarian. And the way that he talks about surfing, he's like, this is where I encounter God. This is where I experience the goodness of God and where I feel surrounded by his love. And I think recognizing that to be a radical disciple doesn't mean that you live on rotten potatoes and you only ever do churchy things. It mm-hmm. means that even in, even in your hobbies, even in the elements of your life, that seem shallow to the world. You're doing that because it's a way that you love God. Yeah. It's interesting when you were mentioning that, I, I think back and this kind of dates me obviously, but there was a movie many years ago called chariots of fire. Mm-hmm. which was the story of Eric Little, this runner uh, who had been a, minister, um, a missionary to China. And he was having a conversation with his sister and uh, she was all upset that he was training for the Olympics. And he said to her, and, and again, I don't know if this is Eric Little or just really good screenwriting from Hollywood, uh-huh. but he said to her, I know God called me to be a missionary, but he also made me fast. And I sense his pleasure when I run. Yes. And to me, that's, that's a part of that radix, that root, the, the fact that if I do all things to the glory of God, you know, I can listen to, like as a former disc jockey, I can listen to doo-wop music to the glory of God, you know, yes. as a, you know, just as long as I incorporate that into my life that I have for him. Anyway, we could keep going on that because that's a, but it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I, I love the perspective that it doesn't mean radical the sense of of going and doing something like you know putting a paint bucket on your head and wearing a white sheet around but it means going to the root of your life mm-hmm. yeah i think that's really cool um okay let's let's talk for a couple of minutes about uh you've got some books one's for children and one's for adults and these books are about saints and yeah, and, and, yeah so saints are important to you Absolutely. And I think primarily because when we see ourselves in the saints, we see that it's possible for us to live that radical discipleship, you know, talking to people and telling them about saints from their cultural background and seeing them light up and say, I I didn't know that it was possible for me or saying, here's a saint with mental illness. Here's a saint who lived with addiction. Here's a saint who survived sexual assault and have people just feel that they're given permission to be holy. And I think that it's very easy for us to believe that there are parts of us that God doesn't want, whether they're the areas of great shame in our life or the things in which we find delight that seem like they're not Christian. And to hear about saints who were athletes and saints who, you know, had these experiences that make us feel like, oh, well, holiness isn't for me. Saints who were voted best dressed in their class, saints who are extraordinarily popular, saints who are really awkward and felt unloved, saints who had extreme learning disabilities, saints with limb differences. It, it makes people recognize that God sees them exactly as they are and wants to make them saints exactly as they are. And so I've been telling the stories of saints for years, trying to help people feel God's love through those stories. And um, this during lockdown, I wrote two books. Um, I happened to be productive. Some people lockdown was really just traumatic and that is totally okay if that's the experience you had. Uh, but I wrote Saints Around the World, which is a storybook with a hundred different stories of saints from nearly 70 different countries. Uh, sort of a read aloud for ages four and up, independent readers, probably seven or eight and up. Uh, but in that book, I would say most most faithful Catholics would know maybe 15 of those hundred stories. So I've been telling adults, it's for you too. There's lots right. of saints in there you won't know. There's a really, some really great indices in the back. So you can look up saints who are athletes or artists or who were adopted or who had divorce in their family. Uh, and the pictures are just beautiful. My illustrator is one of my dearest friends and she just did. Mm-hmm. I've got 
got a little copy right here. She just did the most beautiful job with these mm-hmm. pictures. Um, she did. Oh, they're amazing. Yeah. And they're so detailed and they're all, full. I mean, this is a very specific building, right? And um, very specific vestments. Everything is just very well researched. And then my next book, which comes out um, in October, is called Pray For Us. And it's a similar approach, right? Trying to talk about saints who speak to our different needs and and various different elements of our lives, but especially highlighting the brokenness and the ordinariness, Mm -hmm. right? And so talking about saints who really struggled with sin and talking about saints who had really miserable families and talking about saints who didn't do anything remarkable um, and, and saints who had these like wild adventures. And so that's a really fun one because I put very clickbaity titles in the table of contents. And so when you flip through the table of contents, you're seeing a saint who was addicted to opium and didn't receive the sacraments for 30 years and uh, a saint who smuggled priests during the French Revolution and a war nurse jungle surgeon evangelist nun. So really trying to help people realize that, that the saints are, they're real and they're human and they're broken. And that means that we in our reality and our humanity and our brokenness, we also are called to live lives that give glory to God. So we can become saints. Exactly. Wow. I love that. And uh, have you uh, had any experiences with children on your Saints Around the World book yet? Oh, yeah. I've been going all around reading stories to kids, and it's just beautiful. I think especially to see the power that representation has. You know, I had this one little boy with a limb difference who raised his hand and asked if I knew any saints with limb differences. And I said, I have three in this book. And just the look on his face or another little boy, I was reading the story of Martin DePores. And I said, Martin DePores' parents were never married. And this little boy's face lit up and he called out triumphantly, my parents were never married. And I was just like, what an incredible thing that this now feels to him like an avenue for God's grace and not a source of shame, you know, and just seeing that again and again with, with children who hear these stories and just think, Oh my gosh, I'm going to be a saint. That's what Uh I'm going to do. It's, it's just so exciting. And it's exactly what we were going for. Oh, I love that. I'm excited to see what's going to happen now with the adults and the book that you've got for them called pray for us. And uh, <clears throat> I guess 75 saints, I love that. Uh, I love the subtitle, 75 saints who sinned, suffered, and struggled on their way to holiness. And uh, yeah, I think that's really a good perspective that we're all in progress and we're all under construction. Exactly. And God is at work in that suffering and in that frustration. It's not that God's like, well, I guess I'll be able to figure something out from this. You know, God looks at all of these things that, that are so difficult for us. And he may not be thrilled that we're enduring them, but he says, watch what I can do in this. Watch Mm. what I can do. This is not, this is not wasted and you are not a mistake. Watch what I can do in this. That's beautiful. Well, I want to kind of turn the page and talk for just a second about Catholic education in general. Now you travel, you speak, I'm sure in many schools, uh, you spent time as a teacher, Right now, what do you see as the greatest need that Catholic school teachers have today? Ooh, the need for the teachers? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, that's an interesting question. When I was leaving the classroom, I definitely would have said support from the administration and parents to recognize that you are trying to do the best that you can and that you are not mm-hmm. the enemy Right. <laughs> as a teacher. Um, but I think sort of on a deeper level, what everybody needs is to know that they are radically loved by Jesus and to encounter him in a life transforming way. Because when you, when you know that love of Jesus, it becomes so much easier to love the students in front of you Mm -hmm. and they need above all to experience that love. Um, And I, you know, as a teacher, I had a number of, a number of circumstances where I had kids who I just really had a hard time loving. And I felt the Mm -hmm. Lord say, no, I need you just to pour into this kid because you are also not easy to love. And Mm -hmm. I love you. Um, And just seeing the difference that it made when I was able as an act of the will to love Mm -hmm. these children, not because I suddenly enjoyed them, but broadly speaking, when children know that they're loved, they become far more enjoyable. Yeah. 
Yeah. Cause they're not, they're not desperate and miserable and acting out so that they can try and earn the love of their peers. Right. Um, so yeah, I think if we as educators encounter God in our brokenness, mm-hmm. then that empowers us to love our students in their brokenness. And that makes the classroom an environment where, where people aren't, they aren't acting out of fear or desperation, right? There's a freedom in being loved that makes it much easier to listen and learn. Do you think that um, that kind of encounter with the Lord also minimizes some of the challenges and distractions that educators have today with the COVID issues that you're still dealing with in the classroom, um, financial constraints placed on you by the administration, um, you know, uh, a leaky faucet in the in the uh, restroom, uh, classroom issues that need to be repaired. I mean, all of these things kind of are irritants that get under the skin of a lot of teachers. I mean, it, it may not go away, but does does that kind of a, uh, of an encounter just change your environment? Do you think? I think it does because when you when you know how radically you are loved and when you choose to step into relationship with these young people as an image of God's love for them, knowing that you're going to fail, knowing that you're going to fall short a thousand times, but saying I'm here because I want them to feel the love of Jesus. Well, then all of those frustrations then become something that you can offer as a small crucifixion. Right. And that, that concept of offering things up you know, it doesn't mean that you don't have boundaries. It doesn't mean that you don't petition your administration to do what is the right thing. It doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that it's suddenly okay that there's rotting ceiling tiles falling in the middle of your classroom. Right. Right. But it means that you, you take that and you say, objectively, this is not okay, but objectively the crucifixion was not okay. And I can offer this as a sacrifice for love of my students. And I can be, I can be Jesus to them in accepting this and refusing to let this be what defines my mood and my attitude, because it's not the kid's fault. You know, mm-hmm. very little that happens in the classroom is at its root, the kid's fault. Even terrible behavior is generally rooted in trauma or in suffering at home or an undiagnosed mental illness. Like there's so much going on with these kids today. And so recognizing that you are there to pour your heart out in love and that all of these frustrations and irritants are another way to you for you to double down on that love it just makes it all so much more bearable. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's, it's transformative to the students watching the way that you're going through these, these difficulties. Yes. And I think there's even fruit in losing it a little bit and then apologizing. You mm-hmm. know, when, you, yep. when you're like, why don't any of these markers work? And then you stop and you're like, I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> I am having yeah. a day yeah. and I have not had my prayer time yet today. And I, I'm going to get that in before I come see you tomorrow, because y'all know that I need to be prayed up. Like I had kids sometimes who'd be like, Hey, Miss HK, have you, have you had your prayer time yet today? And I would be like, Oh shoot. No, I haven't. But the fact that they knew that mm-hmm. I loved them better right. when I spent time in prayer, that was big. Yeah. 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 So let, let's turn it over to the student side. What do you see going on with today's young people? So much suffering, Mm -hmm. so much suffering. Uh, I think that, yeah, I mean, a lot of it, I think, is sort of a function of the expectations of social media and the way that they can suffer sort of nonstop. You know, like when when I was a kid and someone was being mean to me at school, then I went home and they couldn't be mean to me until the next day, you know, and these kids, they can just be bullied all day and all night. And then they have these expectations from these social media influencers. And, you know, they're hearing about people's issues with mental illness. And so they're processing their own struggles with mental illness, but they're not necessarily getting the help that they need. And they, they know people who are dying by suicide and that becomes a stronger possibility in their minds. Um, And so much of it is rooted in just feeling desperate and unloved. Uh, And it's just, Father, it's so, it's so hard because I've seen, and I'm sure anybody who's been in education for, you know, 10 years, 15 years, I've seen the change. I've seen the, the age of existential dread and angst and nihilism just get lower and lower 
and lower. And at this point, when I'm talking with seventh graders, my expectation is that they all feel this, this constant anxiety and dread. And when, I mean, I was in seventh grade 25 years ago and I was the outlier, right? That I was having these feelings that made me unusual. And, you know, mm-hmm. it was like sort of a college thing and then it was a high school thing and now it's a middle school thing. And you're like, oh right. gosh, and right. you process this with all of these hormones mm-hmm. too. Yeah. yeah, there's, it's just, it's a really, really hard time to be a kid. Um, and I, I remember being eight years old and somebody saying to me, well, you're just a kid and you don't understand, like your life is so easy and thinking, but this is the hardest my life has ever been. Like, that's not fair yeah. because you're mm-hmm. a grown up and you know how to deal with these things, but I'm only eight. And I think that to have teachers and parents who aren't coming in and saying, but your life isn't actually hard. Like you don't have to pay bills and you don't have to get a job and, and just recognizing that their lives are really hard. It's the hardest their lives have ever been. And it's harder than ours were. And so just having people who sympathize with them and, and who are able to say, like, I don't understand why this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. But if it is, that doesn't make you an idiot. Like, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to sit here and I'm going to weep with those who weep. And the interesting thing is they're having to battle the surreal happiness of the social media world that isn't real, but it's been constructed mm-hmm. by their peers to that. They look like they're having the time of their lives when they themselves may be dying, but this, the, you know, the teenagers are looking at that going, boy, my life really is bad. Exactly. I, exactly. And then they're sharing things and they're not getting the right kind of interactions. And it's right. just, this constant desperate need to be affirmed in their goodness and a thousand different ways that the world tells them that they are not worthy of being loved. Well, with this kind of a generation, do you have any thoughts on how we can do a better job at stimulating their spiritual passions? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, if we as educators, as parents, as adults in the lives of these young people, if we have a relationship with Jesus, that's huge to be able to talk about that relationship with Jesus so that they see this as something that isn't just sterile. Um, And then, you know, as a teacher, I loved teaching my students different forms of prayer and saying like, you might not be into Ignatian meditation. That's fine. Let's try Lexio Divina. Let's try the Jesus prayer. Let's pray with worship music. And, And I actually was really a stickler for silent prayer in their lives. We would have adoration the first Friday of every month at the, the last school that I taught at. And the kids were like, oh, but can we like play music or something? And I was like, no, we can't because you never have silence in your lives. And it's terrifying and it's awful. And it's absolutely essential to growth as a human person. Right. And there were even some teachers who were like, but I'm not comfortable with silence. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, then you're going to need to be uncomfortable because mm-hmm. It is so easy to hide from the Lord, even in pious things like the rosary and worship music and all of that. Uh, but when you, when you have that invitation into silent prayer, like, yeah, you can, you can just figure out something else to think about for an hour, mm-hmm. but it's much more difficult. Uh, and the kids know it. I had a kid one time pull out his phone during adoration and I was like, buddy, what are you doing? And he looked at me and he said, oh, I can't be alone with myself. I was like, wow, like, I love the self-knowledge there, but we're going to need to take that next step. And you're going to need to practice being alone with yourself because that's the way that the spirit's going to speak. Wow. Yeah. So giving them that space and giving them Mm -hmm. styles of prayer to try and say, it's okay. If the mass isn't thrilling to you and it's okay. If the rosary doesn't work for you, uh, try these different things and then just recognize that Prayer is a relationship and relationships are work and it's mm-hmm. going to be hard. And it's, it's okay if you go to prayer and you aren't delighted with it. But when we make that space and when we make that effort, we give God room to speak and he does, he does work. That is really, really great. Well, we're about ready to wrap things up. And I did have one final question. You know, uh, our, um, most of our viewers or listeners are Catholic educators, administrators, uh, people in the classroom, uh, staff members. Do you have any words of encouragement to the Catholic school educators who are in the trenches right now in our current situation? 
Yeah. Oh man. It is hard. It is. I mean, it would be hard even if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And it would be hard even if we weren't in the middle of a national race reckoning. And it would be hard even if we didn't have all of these extraordinary political divisions. Like it is okay if you are exhausted and you feel utterly overwhelmed by all of this. Um, And I guess, yeah, my, my invitation would just be to make time for silent prayer in your day, every life or in your life every day, because I think it, because we're just so exhausted and so overwhelmed, prayer seems like one more thing to check off and one more way to feel inadequate, to feel that we haven't done what we needed to do. But I think if you just say, look, 15 minutes in silence, that's my priority. And maybe right. in those 15 minutes, all you do is just complain to God about how miserable your day is. Great. That's fine. You're connecting with him. And maybe maybe you just fall asleep, right? Like, I mean, sit up and caffeinate first and do it with the lights on. Don't do your silent prayer in bed at night. Um, But when we make that time, it just, everything else comes out better, right? It's not Mm -hmm. that God's like, oh, well, let me reward you with an end to a pandemic, but we're just given the grace to persevere in the frustration and the difficulty. And we have a place to take those frustrations and process them and hand them over to the Lord so that we don't then react purely out of anger. Uh, I think making that commitment to daily silent prayer makes a year as ridiculous as 2021 bearable in a way that nothing else can. Oh, that's, that's a great way for us to, to end our discussion. This has been wonderful. And uh, Meg, I especially want to thank you. I don't think everybody probably can tell a little bit maybe, but not We had a horrible time with the internet (laughs) through this discussion. We completely lost our, lost the internet at one point, but we've, we've made it to the end. And I really want to thank you for your patience and just for this opportunity to be together on follow to lead. This has been absolutely delightful. We'll have to have you back again and and get you on maybe in a while and and hear more about uh, how the new book is going to be doing and things like that. That'll be great. Thank you, father. Well, if, uh, For those of you that are watching or listening, if you haven't done it already, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and be sure to leave a comment to encourage us toward future programs. And we do want to thank our production interns, Alex Shire and Hunter Wees, as well as our production supervisor, Mr. Jack Alsbach, for producing this podcast. And may Almighty God bless you. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.